There's a hymn written in the 1960s that if you grew up in the church, you've likely heard or sung at some point, and the chorus is a very simple lyric. It says, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they will know we are Christians by our love. Well, I grew up in the 90s, and in the 1990s, there was a uh, parody that was birthed, uh, Christian parody t-shirts. They became popular to buy at Bible camps and weekend retreats. And this movement led to a parody of this movement, as well as a parody of that lyric that I just shared, which led to a t-shirt that said, they will know we are Christians, buy our (laughs) t-shirts. And now, nearly 60 years after this song was written, 30 years after this movement of parody Christian t-shirts was born, there's a new parody of this lyric. That's regrettable that you may have come across. There's no hate like Christian love. The unfortunate reality is for many people, myself included, some of the most hurtful experiences that we have faced have been dealt to us by Christians, or done to us as an act of love out of concern for our salvation. One of the common critiques that's leveled at present-day Christianity is that it's a religion full of hypocritical people. In 2013, there's a research group um, called the Barna Group. They performed a study that was designed to examine the degree to which this perception might be accurate. The study explored how well Christians seem to emulate the actions and attitudes of Jesus in their interactions with others. This nationwide study of self-identified Christians, um, the goal of this study was to determine whether or not Christians have the actions and attitude of Jesus as they interact with others, or if they are more akin to the beliefs and behaviors of the Pharisees, the self-righteous sect of religious leaders that's described in the New Testament. Now, in order to assess this, the researchers presented a series of 20 agree or disagree statements, five actions and five attitudes that seem to best encapsulate the actions or attitudes of Jesus Christ during his ministry on earth, And then the researchers did the same with the Pharisees. Ten total statements, five reflecting behaviors, and five examining attitudes. David Kinnaman is the president of the Barna Group. He directed this study, and he commented on the creation of a Christ-like scale. He says, Our intent was to create some discussion about the intangible aspects of following Jesus and representing Jesus. Obviously, the survey itself by itself, obviously, yeah, obviously the survey research by itself cannot fully measure someone's Christ-likeness or Pharisee-likeness. But he goes on to say that the study was meant to identify a baseline of qualities of Jesus, things like empathy, love, and a desire to share faith with others, or, on the other side, the resistance to such ideals in the form of self-focused hypocrisy. The statements that they used as questions uh, came from the Gospels and the Epistles, uh, and they worked with a a team of leading pastors to develop these survey questions. The findings of this survey revealed that most self-identified Christians in the United States, now they answered the questions themselves, this was not 
researchers observing actions and making judgments. Each person had these 20 questions. They self-selected the answers on what best identified the way in which they live out their faith. Just over half of the nation's Christians, 51%, identified as pharisaical. These Christians tend to have attitudes and actions that were characterized by self-righteousness. On the other end of the spectrum, 14% of self-identified Christians, one out of seven Christians, seemed to represent the actions and attitudes found to be consistent with those of Jesus. Now, this was 2013. This was 10 years ago. This was pre-2016 election, pre-2020 election, pre-COVID. I can only imagine that if this study were replicated today, the numbers are trending in the wrong direction. As a church, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And so far, we've seen Jesus address the following. In Matthew 5, he addresses the Christian's character. He addresses a Christian's influence in the world. He addresses the Christian's authority in the Bible. In chapter 6, he addresses a Christian's devotional life and also their attitude towards money and possessions. And now we move into the last section of Jesus' sermon, which focuses on the theme of relationships. Now there's no doubt Christianity is a profoundly personal religion in that we are able to have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. That being said, Christianity is not just about personal relationship. And that's why we talk about community here so frequently. That's why we've dedicated an entire hour every single week as we gather together to foster and build relationship and community. Relationships are critical. The Christian counterculture that's envisioned by Jesus focuses on pursuing God in community. It focuses on caring for one another, for growing with one another, for serving with one another. And so this next section of Jesus' sermon addresses how we are to interact as a community, both within ourselves and outside of the walls of the church. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, Verses 1 through 6, I invite you, you can use one of the Pew Bibles, you're welcome to use your phone, the scripture text is on the front of the sermon notes, and it will also be on the screen uh, behind me. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. <clears throat> do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, as we walk through this text this morning, we're going to see a command from Jesus, we're going to see a warning from Jesus, 
and we're going to see a better response from Jesus. First, in verse 1, we see the command. Matthew 7, 1 tells us, do not judge or you too will be judged. This is possibly one of the most often misused verses in the Bible. Our modern culture twists this comment into a command to never disapprove or never correct the actions of another individual. Now, this mishandling of Christ's word is out of context in several ways. We get it wrong a handful of ways in our application. First, Jesus doesn't say, never judge. He warns that improper judgment has a consequence. Second, the statement is immediately followed by instructions from Christ on the proper way in which to use judgment. Third, Jesus' other teachings explicitly indicate that proper judgment, and perhaps a better word for this would not be judgment, but discernment, is necessary. And we're going to see this more clearly in a couple of weeks as Rich continues in teaching uh, from later on in Matthew 7. Uh, when Jesus warns us to be on the look for false teachers. What this text is saying is that hypocritical or shallow judgment among Christ's followers is wrong. Jesus has been teaching within the context of Israel's religious leaders and how they have been practicing their righteousness. We've seen this in Matthew chapter 5 and, and chapter 6 as we've gone through this sermon. And throughout this time, he is calling out the hypocrites, those who call attention to themselves as they give to the needy, as they pray, and as they fast. You see, under their leadership, the worship of God became more about proving one's worthiness to other people instead of humbly serving God. So on the one hand, righteous acts were performed to get approval from others, and on the other hand, controlling religious leaders looked for opportunities to express condemnation against those that they did not see as sufficiently righteous. Following their example, the everyday people of Israel learned to perform a religious duty for others' approval and to belittle those who did differently than the way that they preferred. And so the result was a false religious experience pride and fear of judgment from others instead of humility and graciousness to others. The second reason for not judging others in Matthew 7 uh, gives us a warning of judgment. Verse 2 says, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In that context, Jesus says to the crowds of people following him not to judge others in order not to be unfairly judged. He's talking about having an arrogant attitude, taking the place of God. Lack of humility and grace in how we perceive others leads us to wrongly declare one person's righteousness worthy and another person's righteousness unworthy based merely on appearance or our personal assumptions. And so to judge this way is to assume authority over others that God has not given us. In the end, it is God who will judge those who judge in this way. 
Jesus has commanded his followers not to judge, but this statement isn't meant to be ripped out of context and misapplied. Here, Christ begins giving some context that's needed to interpret these words. It's that Christians should not take God's place in declaring some people righteous or other people unrighteous when we look only using shallowness or ignorance. And so Jesus is offering a serious warning that those who pronounce judgment on others as if they were God will be judged with precisely the same force and to the same degree. Some commentators understand Jesus to be expressing a principle of our human nature. Judgmental people always end up being judged by everyone else. Their attempt to hold everyone else to a higher standard provokes the people around them to measure every single action they take. Holding others to unreasonable standards leads to charges of hypocrisy. In that sense, this parallels the ideas of forgiveness and mercy. There's a line that we pray in the Lord's Prayer. We did a series on the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer came up in our series here on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. There's the petition, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In Matthew 6, 14 through 15, Jesus goes on to say, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Those who unfairly judge others lack understanding of their own limitations. Other commentators understand Jesus' warning as a warning about judgment from God himself. He will judge those who judge others. He will bring about perfect justice by judging those who are wrongly critical using the exacting standards they attempted to afflict on others. God will hold a judgmental people accountable for attempting to take on his role as just judge. Well, in verse 3, Jesus gives us the standard of judgment. It reads, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Earlier verses contained a statement quickly and often taken out of context. Christ is clear that right judgment includes distinguishing between good and evil. Judging others as if we are the standard of goodness is evil. Jesus commanded that his followers judge not, but immediately begins to explain what this means. In short, Christ con- what Christ is condemning here is shallow, hypocritical, selfish criticism of others. He's not giving human beings authority to judge the righteousness of others using our own preferences as the standard. God sets the standards. None of us are perfectly righteous ourselves, and so we are in no position to pronounce judgment because we ourselves are guilty of sin. Which brings us to our fitness for judgment. Matthew 7, 4 says, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. Jesus shows us in this verse that we are often blind to our own sin, which makes our shallow condemnation of others even more foolish. Jesus asks us, how are we so skillful to see a speck in someone else's eye, yet unable to notice the log in our own eye? Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, in his transliteration, The Message. 
He says, do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. We are so good at recognizing the smallest sinful infractions in the lives of others while walking around with clearly evident ugly sins of our own. And so Jesus is forbidding his listeners from presuming God's place by making shallow judgments on others. He's calling out the human tendency to inflate others' wrongdoing while minimizing our own. We are unqualified to pronounce judgment because we are blind to our own wrongdoing. We are incapable of noticing specks in the lives, we are, we are capable of noticing specks in the lives of others, while the logs in our own eyes may be far greater than what we are trying to correct in another person. And so Christ gives us a better way to respond. How are we to respond? Matthew 7, chapter 5. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will, clear, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is telling his audience not to judge each other, for they will be judged. But he doesn't mean that we shouldn't have any discernment about sin, even in other people's lives. Instead, the command is simply about playing God. And so it's crucial to realize what Jesus is saying in verse 5. He's not saying once the log has been removed to let your brother or sister linger with the speck in their eye. No. He says once we have removed the log from our own eye, we are to help remove the speck from our sibling's eye. And so the difference is that in helping this way, we're no longer attempting to play the role of judge over another person's life. We're acknowledging the reality of our own sin, and we are serving our brother or sister by helping them. Likewise, these specks and logs are truly sinful, but the point is not that we see them, uh, we, everything we see in others must be accepted, but that we should approach our sin and the sin of others with humility and grace, not arrogance. Christians are not called to pronounce God's judgment on other sinners while leaving our own lives unexamined. We are not qualified to fill God's sinless, righteous shoes. To judge the sin of others while ignoring our own sin is as absurd as criticizing someone with dust in their eyes while our own eye is impaled by a giant stick. Our text for today concludes with the following which I think addresses how we are to deal um, with the world, with non-Christians. Matthew 7, 6 says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. It's easy to focus on the derogatory imagery of dogs and pigs and miss the real point, which isn't meant as an insult to the world. The message that Jesus is conveying here is about wasting things of value on those who will not appreciate them 
or even be angered by the offer. Scripture certainly embraces the value of seeking to share the good news of Jesus Christ to others. But in light of what Jesus has taught us in verses 1 through 5, we need to keep in mind that while we are indeed to hold one another accountable, the same does not apply in our interactions with non-Christians. Spiritually speaking, casting pearls before the swine is not an act of love towards an unbeliever. It is a waste of God-given resources. In 2020, our family took the first step in what ended up being our departure from South Minneapolis to the farm when we got backyard chickens for our powder horn home. We wanted to start becoming more aware of our food sources. We wanted to be more sustainable in our living and our starting point was throwing out our food scraps out to the birds rather than sending that trash to a landfill or garbage disposal. Well, some 20 chickens and two ducks later in the backyard in Minneapolis, we moved to a farm. And now our scraps literally go to the pigs. But here's the thing. The pigs get our scraps. We're not giving them the roast immediately after we have prepared it for our Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. To do so would be a waste of our resources. The pigs aren't going to value our roast any more fresh out of the oven than they are the leftover scraps that we give them. And so giving what we highly value to a creature that has no value for it, that's not loving, and it's a waste of our resources. Similarly, I can think of a time in, in college. I went to Indiana University. Um, there's a gorgeous arboretum that is in the center of campus. And I'm sure if you've ever been to a uh, large college campus, a, a major event, you've seen the, the street preachers. And um, some of them are fine. Others, maybe not so fine. And I can recall numerous occasions where the same street preacher at 8 o'clock in the morning would stand in the arboretum with his megaphone, hollering at the hungover college students, yelling at the women, saying they were sinful for going to college when they should be married and serving their husbands instead of getting their education, all in the name of Jesus. He was doing more harm than he was doing good. He was taking the value of love of the gospel of Jesus Christ and spewing out things that were making people turn and run from Jesus. And so this text has less to do with determining who the dogs and pigs are of the world and more to do are we being good stewards of the faith that we proclaim to have? Carrie Newhoff 
is a former lawyer. He's a, a founding pastor of a church in Ontario, blogger, podcaster, and expert in the world of Christian organizational health and leadership. He wrote an article in response to that Barna study that I referenced uh, earlier um, this morning, warning church leaders that judgmental Christians are killing your church. He says the problem in many cases is not that unchurched people don't know any Christians. The problem is that they do, and they don't like us for good reason. Christians like to argue, well, who then is going to stand up for the truth? Sure. But in Jesus, grace and truth are perfectly fused. If you remove grace from truth, you don't have truth at all, but an imitation. The opposite is also true. If you remove truth from grace, then you don't have grace. But in the church today, and I recognize that I am part of that, the hard edge of truth without grace has crushed so many people. And one of the most frequent expressions of loveless truth is found in judgment. And so I want to end our time this morning by encouraging us to consider these important virtues that Newhoff uh, directs us to. And he says, keep judging and your church will miss out on these Christian virtues that are critical to advancing our church's mission. And the first is love. The presence of judgment almost always guarantees an absence of love. You might ask, but what if they're making a mistake? What if we need to correct them? Well, Jesus told us what to do, right? Jesus tells us, first deal with our own mistakes, deal with the depths of our own sin, deal with our own issues first. And in the process of our own confession, we encounter a loving God who forgives us despite of our own sin. And so then having received the love and forgiveness, we can turn and love others. The second virtue is help. People who judge rarely help, and people who help rarely judge. Judgment says, I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm more righteous than you. But a helping heart levels the playing field. There is no better than you, greater than you mentality. It's at the same level. And so when Jesus taught on judgment, not only did he tell us not to judge and to remove the massive plank from our own eye before trying to find a speck of dust in somebody else's, he then showed us that the purpose of removing the speck the speck from someone else's eye is to help them. The relational purpose of stepping into someone else's world, of being in Christian community, is not judgment, but helping others. The third value is humility. Judgment is not grounded in humility. It's grounded in the opposite, pride and arrogance. And that's because judgment, a judgmental person almost always carries with them a sense of condensation. Judgment says, I'm better than you. I know more than you. I'm superior to you. And people run away from it. And can you blame them? Humility, by contrast, gives birth to empathy. 
It says, I'm like you. I get that. And maybe we can help each other. The fourth thing that Newhoff points us to is prayer. If we want to stop judging someone, let's pray for them. Don't pray about them. Don't pray about the things you don't like about them. Don't pray about their own sin. Pray for them. Pray about your own heart. Pray about your own motives and attitudes toward them. This is really hard. And I will admit that um, that is not an easy thing. Um, Pastor Amy gave a great sermon on this uh, a couple months ago. And uh, I'd encourage you to go back to that. Praying, uh, praying for things that are hard to pray for. Um, but it's an important component of uh, uh, of a characteristic that we need to be uh, having when it comes to uh, judgment. And then fifth is evangelism. Newhoff argues, if you want to kill evangelism at your church, fill your church with judgmental Christians. People run from people who judge them, and they run to people who love them. Think about it. That's what I do. I run from people who judge me. I don't want to be around that. God doesn't ask us to judge the world. That job belongs to God and God alone. But God does ask us to love. We cannot and will not judge people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our lives are already weighed down. People have enough of inner turmoil to deal with They don't need us jumping on them and tearing them down. Judgment tears people down. Discernment seeks to help. Throughout Jesus' ministry, his harshest words were reserved for Pharisees. The arrogant, judgmental leaders, the insiders of faith. At times, we've likely been those insiders. Conversely, Jesus rarely was harsh to people outside of the faith. Newhoff argues, and I agree, we'd be far better as a church if we did the same. Let us pray. Almighty God, help us to be a community known by that perfect fusion of grace and truth displayed in Jesus Christ. May we be people known for our love for others, for our help for others, for our own humility in our relationships with each other and with the world. May we be people of prayer, praying for not only our needs, not only for the needs of our community, but also for the needs of those that we are tempted to judge ourselves. And may we be a people that desire to share those attributes and show the world who Jesus really is. We ask these things in his name and for his sake.